morning, we're going to continue the series that we've been doing entitled All In. And I want to talk to you about what it, what it looks like to live that all-in life, what it means to truly to grasp those, those all-in moments. You know, this is the, the time of year. There's, there's an element of being, being back in those school days that I miss. And, uh, and one of the things, as strange as it sounds, uh, I miss preparing for Friday night football games. And, and I miss even this time of year, as a football player, this time of year, up until the time that school starts, you would engage in uh, two-a-days. So you'd have practice in the morning, uh, and then you'd go home, and you'd sit at home just long enough for your muscles to get completely tight, right? And then you'd go back to school for, for afternoon practice. And of course, if you were living in Florida, uh, which a part of my high school days, I lived in Southwest Florida, uh, you, would, you would go home and you would, you would wait until the afternoon rains came. And uh, just where it got real, just hot and muggy. Uh, and, uh, and then you would, uh, as the rains ended, you would make your way back to school, put on that same, those same sweaty clothes that you had on in the morning. And you would, you would go and you would, you would practice pretty much, until, pretty much until dark. And the reason that you did this was because you were convinced that it was going to pay off in the long run. And, and I will tell you that uh, the difference between victory and failure is, is very, it's a very fine line. In fact, here's what I've come to discover. I've come to discover this. The difference between victory and failure is this. Those who consistently see victory in their life, they do consistently what the ordinary person does occasionally. Let me say this again. The difference between experiencing victory and experiencing failure in life is doing consistently what others do occasionally. It's it's the fundamental aspect of living your life all in, of living my life in such a way that I do consistently what others do occasionally. And when I think about this this idea of, of all in, one of the one of the key people from history that stands out to me in this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in, in, in 2 Timothy, he, he writes this. He makes a statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I, and I want to I set the scene for you. This is very close to the end of Paul's life. Uh, he is imprisoned in the maritime prison in Rome. Uh, it is the second time that he's been in prison. And he knows this. He knows that this second time, that it's not going to end up the way that his first imprisonment ended up, with a release. He knows that the time has come. He knows that the time is near. And in fact, I want to do this. I want the tech team to help me. If they can, I want them to put a picture of the maritime prison up. Uh, and this is, uh, this is really, this is what, that, what the prison looks like today. Uh, it doesn't look like that. We'll see if they can get the picture up. It looks very dark, actually. So we may need to move on. Uh, but this, this prison, there it is. Now I want you to imagine, this is a, it's a circular prison. It's probably 12 feet in diameter. Uh, there are steps that will get you down into the prison today. Uh, in, in Paul's day, there were not steps that were led down into the prison. You were basically lowered down by that hole in the ceiling. And it is in this setting, it's in this prison cell that 
that, that Paul writes this. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. He knows this. He knows that he is not going to escape. He knows that his life will be taken at the hands of a ruthless emperor named Nero. And yet in the midst of that, here's what he writes. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will present to me on that day. And not just to me, but to everyone who can make this same statement. At the end of the journey for you, what declaration will you be able to make? What confidence will you be able to have? What truth will you be able to espouse? Listen, friends, there's something significant, something powerful about knowing that we have lived our life to its fullest, knowing that we've engaged all in. And I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that God has called each and every one of us to an all-in journey, to an all-in life. And to be able to say, for there is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, he himself will present to me on that day. God, I pray today as we consider your word that you would make it a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. God, help us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, we commit these moments to you in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I want to, for, for a few moments this morning, I want to talk to you about, about what it means to be all in. And then the first thing that I want you to, that, that I, I want to talk to you about this morning that I want you to grasp is this issue of passion. And, and here's what I have discovered, that we may express it in different ways, but each and every one of us are people of passion. We're all passionate about something. Some of us this morning, we're passionate about the arts. Some of us are here this morning, our educators that are here this morning, they're passionate about training students, they're passionate about teaching students. There are some that are passionate about politics. There are some who are, who are passionate about experience. There are some who are passionate about their favorite sports team. And there are others who are passionate about attaining wealth, right? We, we have these different passions that drive us, things that, that move us, things that consume us. Well, for Paul, who was originally known as Saul, he had this significant passion. And it was a passion that was, it was hardwired into him. It, it, was, it was tapping into that, that reservoir of passion that God places within each one of us. And, and then his experience building on it. We are first introduced to Paul, and, and, and honestly, when, when we talk about Paul, or, or, or before he was known as Paul, as Saul, normally when you talk about Paul, we have this, this idea, right? This, this mental image that will pop into our head. Because when we think about Paul, we think about the writings that we have. Paul wrote just a little, little more than 80 pages of the Bible. And, and when we think about Paul, we think about Paul in the context of those writings. And yet, to fully understand Paul, to fully understand his journey, and to fully understand the testimony that Paul has, and how it can help us to understand the life that God has called us to live, it's important that we, that we step back and we look at a little bit of his background. 
When, when Scripture first introduces us to Paul, it introduces us to Paul at the end of Acts chapter 7, the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And at the end of Acts chapter 7, here's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves at the trial of Stephen. Stephen was one of the servants in the early church. And, and in his activity as a deacon, diaconon, or servant in the early church, he is accused of some things, wrongly accused of some things, blasphemy, and coming against the, 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 the church of the day, coming against the, 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 the Jewish synagogue and the J- Jewish way of life. And in the midst of Stephen giving his defense, this angry mob of, of, of religious zealots, well, and not just religious zealots, people that were using religion to mask their political aspirations. This angry mob takes Stephen out into the street and they stone him. Now, it's not righteous indignation, it's brutal murder. They have, no, they have no moral standing to stone Stephen, and they have no legal standing to stone Stephen. In that time, in that day, the only person who could rightfully execute someone was the Roman government. And this angry lynch mob took it into their own hands to, to basically to stone this man to death. And when we're first introduced to to Paul, then known as Saul, he is there. He He has come up through the ranks. He's now someone of, of, of great influence. And he gives his endorsement of his approval of, that's what it tells us there in, 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 in Acts 8:1. It says, and Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen. So the first introduction that we have to Paul is this act of absolute brutality. How, how, could, how could this man who, who, who writes so much of the New Testament and talks about the grace of God and talks about the mercy of God, how could he be in a place where he would not just permit, but endorse, embrace the violent execution of an individual who was so undeserving of that type of a treatment? It was because of this issue of passion and misaligned passion, misguided passion. But it's somewhat understood. If we know a little bit about Paul, Saul's story. Saul was born in Tarsus, which is an area that would be now in modern-day Turkey. Tarsus was a very cosmopolitan city. In fact, Tarsus is where uh, Mark Anthony met Cleopatra. And, and, and Tarsus was this city, it was, it was, there was a lot of great philosophers, great thinkers. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of commerce that happened because Tarsus sat on a major river and it was very close. It was about 20 minutes from the Mediterranean Sea. And so it was a, it was a, a city of great renown. In fact, uh, Paul, in, in giving a defense in, 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 in the book of Acts, it tells us this. When, when Paul is going to give his, his defense there in Jerusalem, uh, when, the, when the people there, when they, when they come and, and they attempt to attack him and they, they, they attempt to have him arrested and, and, and attempt to have him executed, Paul stands up and he says this. He says, I want you to know that I'm from Tarsus, no ordinary city, no simple city. It was indeed a cosmopolitan city. And in that city, 
Paul lived as a Jew, but also as a Roman citizen. And he was a Roman citizen from birth, which tells us that his father was a Roman citizen. So, so Saul's or Paul's father had achieved some area of notoriety or financial success that he was able either to be given his Roman citizenship or he was able to purchase his Roman citizenship. So what this means is, is, that, is that he grew up in a home that had resource, he grew up in a home that had opportunity, but in that he also grew up in a home that fully embraced the principles of the law. Paul, in, in, in describing his life journey, he says this, I am, I am from the tribe of Benjamin, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, as it relates to the law, he says, I lived my life faultless. So we know this. We know that Paul was a Pharisee. It seems right to assume that his father was also a Pharisee. And so he grew up in this environment. He grew up in this home where they might have spoken Greek or Latin in the streets, but they're going to speak Hebrew or Aramaic in his home. He's being taught from a very early age this issue of the law and the keeping of the law. And one of the things that he's been taught is this, is he's been taught that when God's people are in right alignment with God, God blesses. But he's been taught over and over again the history of the Hebrew people. And any time in, in, in the history of the Hebrew people, when they've, when they've drifted away from the principles of God, when they've drifted away from the plan of God, when they've got caught up in issues of idolatry or, or issues of, un, un, of unwholesome relationship, it has caused them to step away from God's blessing. And not just step away from God's blessing, but at times even to experience the wrath of God. And so one of the most, most important things that Paul would have learned as a young boy is this issue of walking right and walking in purity. And when, and when things weren't happening, happening that were right and things that weren't happening that were pure, something had to be done about it. For, for young Saul... He had this, this incredible connection. I want, I, want you to think about, I want you to think about how you feel about national pride. We have this controversy going on uh, in America today about whether or not athletes should stand for the national anthem. And, 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 and it has all this controversy and all this debate. Why? Because it, it goes to that issue of national pride and, and it goes to that issue of, of honoring. And, and, and people question whether or not it's honoring the nation or dishonoring the nation. And, and, and that is not the, the conversation that we want to get into today. But it does, it helps us to understand how this issue of, of national pride, how it, how it resonates. I'll tell you, I've, I've had the, the, the privilege of, of traveling around the world to share who Christ is. And I love, love, love. In fact, I had this experience yesterday of getting off a plane and seeing that sign that says, Welcome to the United States of America. And there's just something settling when you see that. Well, it really, it's, 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 it's more settling once you make it through customs and immigration and you know they're letting you back into the country, right? Because there's always that moment, you never know, that they go, uh, you, sir, uh, no, you need to step aside. Yeah, we've decided, you, not so much, right? And so I'm always, there's just that, that moment when I've gotten through customs and I've gotten my luggage and I made it through and I go, I'm home. God bless America, land that I love. So we have this issue of, of national pride. 
We also, we have this issue of the, the, the pride of our family, right? Our familial heritage. Last Sunday, I had the opportunity to, to preach at Gateway Church in Glasgow, Scotland. It is about 40 minutes from where my family would have lived back in the 1300s, 1400s. My family fled Scotland in 1523 amidst religious oppression and moved to Northern Ireland and then in the uh, late 1700s came, came, came to America. And so, but to be there, to be there in the, in the, in the, in the countryside where were some 600 years ago, 700 years ago, that, that my ancestors would, would, have, would, have, would have walked those hills. I'm convinced, I played some golf while I was over there as well, I'm convinced I lost golf balls in places where my forefathers had walked. But that connection of a family, I can meet somebody that I've never had connection with, and then find out we share the same last name, right? And there's, there's that, that kindred element that comes into play. And then you have the issue of faith. I'm, I'm grateful for my Christian faith. And I will defend it. I, I will defend my Christian faith. I, I will defend the Garvin name. And I will defend the United States of America. It's part of my, both my right and my responsibility as a citizen of the United States of America. Well, for Paul or young Saul, his faith, his family, and his nation were all one. As an Israelite, that was your nation. Yes, he lived in Tarsus and Cilicia. And he was a Roman citizen, but his Roman citizenship was secondary to the fact that he was an Israelite, that he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was proud of that, that heritage, he was proud of his family, and he was proud of his faith. And anything that would come against that, that was trouble. The age of nine, Saul loses his mother. At the age of 13, his father recognizes that for his son to follow in the way that, the, that, that, he, that his father believes he should follow, that he's got to get him out of Tarsus. He's got to get him out of this Gentile city. He's got to get him into the place where he can receive the proper education. And so his father sends him at age 13 to Jerusalem. And doesn't just send him at age 13 to Jerusalem. He sends him and arranges for Saul to be taught to sit at the feet of the best known teacher, the best known rabbi of that day, a gentleman by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel, who was considered to be the foremost authority in that generation. And so for some four years, he would sit at the feet of Gamaliel, learning the law, learning the history. And then into his world comes this story of this man from Nazareth. 
who speaks in overt opposition to the Pharisees, who talks about a different way. And, and, for, and for Saul, it was an outright attack on his family. It was an outright attack on his religion. It was an outright attack on his nation. The crucifixion was not just, of Jesus, wasn't just justified, it was absolutely required, according to Saul. And Stephen, who was trying to continue to stir up this controversy that this Jesus had created, the, the very fact that he would make the statements that he made, it was the right thing to do to violently, brutally murder this man. You want to talk about passion? That's passion. And, and when this is done, when, when Stephen has been brutally murdered, Saul goes to the chief priests and the elders of the church, and he says, listen, as a result of what has happened to Stephen, some of the followers of the way, some of the followers of this guy Jesus, they've scattered, and some of them have gone to Damascus. I want to go, and I want to, I want to, I want to deal with all of them. And the chief priests gave their endorsement and said, go do it. And it tells us in, in the beginning of, of Acts chapter 8, it tells us this. It says, uh, Acts 8 1 says, and, 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 so, and Saul approved of their killing him, killing Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against a church, the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. This is a man of tremendous passion. But it's misguided. It's misguided. He's passionate about the wrong things. Now that sounds crazy to say, right? How, how can you say that it's wrong to be passionate about your family? How can you say it's wrong to be passionate about principles of faith? How can you say it's, it's wrong to be passionate about the issues of nation? I mean, all those things sound really good and sound really godly and sound really wholesome. And yet, in this particular context, in Saul's life, in Saul's world, it's not just wrong, it's toxic. But friends, here's where an understanding of who God is and, and what God does, why it's so important. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And what God does is this. God doesn't judge Saul. He simply has a moment with Saul. Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus. And when he gets almost to Damascus, he is blinded by a, by a blinding light. And he... He has this divine encounter. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I don't even know who you are. 
Saul responds, and he says, I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And he has this moment. He has this epiphany, and he understands. Man, my my passion and my zeal have been profoundly misguided. During our missions convention this year, we had um, our, our good missionary friend and a dear personal friend of mine, Michael McNamee, we had Michael here, and you may recall that he, he spoke on Sunday morning. I had him stay over, and on Monday, I had him share with our pastoral team. And, uh, and, and just because M- Michael has got a lot of miles in ministry, he's got a lot of years, and, and I wanted him to be able to speak some wisdom into our pastoral team. And so uh, we did, we did a, a, a time of question and answering as he was meeting with us on Monday morning. And I asked him this question. I said, I said Michael, if, there, if there's one thing that you could change, what is it that you would change? And, and, and I was thinking about in the context of ministry, right, in his ministry life, in his journey as an evangelist, in his, in his journey as a missionary, I was thinking about in that context. Many of you know Michael McNamee's story. For those of you that don't know uh, his story, he is, he is one of our great European missionaries. Michael was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He grew up, uh, his father was the head of the Black Taxi Association in, in Northern Ireland, and Michael was a member of the Irish Republican Army. He was a member of the IRA. In fact, at 19 years of age, he was an assassin for the IRA. And he has this, he has this radical conversion experience, right? But he has lived almost 50 years as a, as a, as a, a completely sold-out Christ follower. And he has, he has spent 40 years as an evangelist and a missionary. And so I was thinking about in that context, although I didn't clarify, I, just, I said, Michael, if there's one thing that you could do different, what would you do? And, and I, I, in, in all the years that we've known one another, and I first met Michael in 1984, in all the years I've never heard him say this, but he, he said this, with, with a disposition of sorrow, he said this, you know, if I could do one thing, I would not have killed as many people. And I, I knew his story and appreciated his testimony, but it was the first time that I saw him in that light and recognized all that he carried. But you know, when he was a young man growing up, in the environment that he grew up in, he was Irish. He felt like he was protecting Ireland. I've heard Michael regularly refer to himself now as a former terrorist. But when he was a member of the IRA, he didn't see himself as a terrorist. He simply saw himself as a freedom fighter. Why? Because of this issue of misguided passion. So here's here's the big question that I have for you today is this. What drives your heart? What drives your heart? Well, pastor, let me tell you what drives my heart. What drives my heart is my family, and I will give anything for my family. Sir, I appreciate that. And I think it's a wonderful thing that your children see you at every, at every baseball game, that they see you at every track meet, that they see you at every softball game, that they see you at every soccer game. 
And I applaud you for that. But can I offer this to you, Dad? That it is much more important that your children see you as a great follower of Jesus than as a great dad. I'm... I am heartbroken, and, and I see this still today. I, I saw it in my nine years of youth ministry, and I, still, I, I see it still today, of, of parents that will take their children out of church for a sporting event. But rare will they cause their child to miss a sporting event for church. Now, listen, I, I'm as big of a sports fan as the next guy. I am, I cannot put into words how excited I am that we are once again on the eve of football. Those are good days. See? Come on now. Uh, and, And spoken as a true Florida State fan because they're passionate before week one. By week seven, we'll have them in counseling, but that's a different issue. What drives your heart? Some of you are here and you're leaders in business and you have employees that count on you. And your business doing well is really important to you. And and that's commendable. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? When you read through the writings of Paul, here's what you find over and over again. Paul talks about the fact, he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's an interesting statement that he makes. He makes a statement Having said, the life that I lived according to the law was faultless. Because here's, I'm convinced, here's what Paul came to understand. He came to understand That it is, it is the disposition of our heart, not the activities of our day that make the biggest difference. So I want to ask you this question again. What drives your heart? Because see, we've got to have the proper passion. And the reason we have to have the proper passion is this, because difficulties and challenges will come. Listen, listen, listen to, 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 to Paul's experience. Here's what he says. He says this. I have worked much, this is 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly 
on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then he says this, and as a pastor, I can relate to this. And he says, besides everything else, I have faced daily the pressure and, uh, of my concern for the church. See, our passion has to be rightly aligned because if our passion isn't rightly aligned, it's easy for us to go, I'm out. I'm out. I was always, I was always interested by the number of my friends that would show up for the first day of football practice but would be gone by the fifth day of football practice. It's too hot. That coach is too mean. They don't know what they're doing. See, being all in isn't just about passion. It's also about having a determined disposition when I don't feel so passionate. I will start in the next two weeks, I'll start training for the Orlando Half Marathon. And then uh, I, I plan on in January running the full marathon. And um, one of the things about training is this, is you have to prepare even when you don't feel like it. Specifically for running, you have to run even when you don't feel like it. There has to be a determination. And Paul just, he has this determination about it. Right? He's got his passion rightly aligned. And, and, and then even when he doesn't feel it, he, he still does it. And I, I think that comes from I think that comes from having a, a healthy view. Having a healthy view of the situation that I find myself in, having a, a healthy view of the, of the world. I, I put this in my notes because it, it resonates to me. Being all in means I have to have a wide view. It can't just be about me. It can't just be about my name. It can't be just about my immediate family. It's got to be about God's heart. We know this. We know that Paul took at least three missionary journeys. It would have been so easy for him to say, there's, there's plenty to do in Jerusalem. I, I got my responsibility right here. But he says, no, I, I've got to be about more than this. I, I've got to 
I've got to have my passion line up with God's passion. And I have to stick with it even when I don't feel like it. And if my passion matches God's passion, then I'm going to love what God loves. And God loves the world. So I have to go out into the world and allow them to see Jesus from a right perspective. Because Paul knew firsthand what it meant to see Jesus from the wrong perspective. Right? He knew that. He knew what it was like to be a Pharisee and to see Jesus as an enemy rather than a friend. He knew what it was like to see Jesus as a man rather than a Messiah. And knowing Jesus for who he really is, he said, I I have to share Jesus. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 1030 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.